0: Our text today in this series, and this sermon that's in the second one of this series, is Matthew chapter 4. And uh, we're in a series called The Greatest Job on Earth. Making disciples who know how to make disciples. The church has gotten down making disciples. But that's not the end game. Making disciples who know how to make disciples. And today we're going to learn how to answer the call. Let me tell you about D.L. Moody. I ended Last week, with a, an illustration about my spiritual lineage, I could track it all the way back through D.L. Moody to his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball. Let me start today with D.L. Moody. When he, he visited an art gallery in Chicago, he was especially impressed by a painting called The Rock of Ages. You can get on the internet and find this. There's a couple different versions of it, but uh, the one that I looked at is a picture of a, a woman who is clinging with both hands, both arms to a cross that was anchored in a rock in the ocean. And they see the violent waves, the storminess was just was just crashing against that rock. And she hung tightly to the cross. Well, later... Mr Moody saw a similar picture he commented on what a beautiful picture that is to cling to the cross in the midst of the storm but he saw a similar picture and this one also showed a person in a storm holding to a cross but with one hand this person around the cross not you got to hear this and the other pictured in your mind the other hand was reaching out to someone who was about to drown And he commented that though the first painting was beautiful, the second was even lovelier. Now you've got that image in your mind. You're coloring it the way that your imagination wants to. And that is beautiful. That's what's fun about storytelling and giving illustrations. I have to trust that your imagination is going to run with that picture. But whatever it looks like, in your mind, I want you to picture a storm coming against a rock. You are on that rock. Embedded in that rock is a, a cross, and you have got both arms around that cross. And then you finally see someone who is drowning, and you take one of those arms, and you reach it out to rescue that person. That's disciple-making. And that's what we're going to see that Jesus teaches us to do. So here we go. Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at verse 18. As all get in the text together. Here's what the incredible, inspired word of God without error says. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Jesus did, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen let me let me give you a little background. Fishing was a major industry in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, it's a freshwater lake. So if you can if you can picture kind of a, a bit of a pear-shaped lake. 13 miles, 13 and a half, to be technically correct, from the top to the bottom, and seven and a half miles wide at its widest point it is a beautiful lake it is full of 25 species of fish some of which you're even familiar with catfish and mullets and all sorts of fish some uh, unique to that area and Josephus that Roman historian by the way Josephus was a Jew he wrote for Rome he was the one-time governor of Galilee did you know that So Josephus knows a lot about the Sea of Galilee and he wrote that there was often 240 fishing boats on that lake, 13 by 17 half. a lot of fishing boats. The fishing industry was massive. You know why? Because the Jews rarely ate meat. They almost always ate fish. The Gentiles coveted the fish from the Sea of Galilee and particularly, now listen, particularly sardines. Very plentiful in that sea, that freshwater lake. So there are four methods of catching fish. Now this is all background. This is all color commentary. This is to fill out the text. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. Well, what's it like to be fishing? Because that's what Peter and Andrew and James and John were doing. Well, they had four main ways that they would fish the first one is with a baited hook do you remember when Jesus said to Peter go out and throw your line into the lake and pull that fish out and reach into its mouth you'll pull out the the temple tax which was a shekel and Peter did and lo and behold in its mouth was the the coin So baited hook. The second way that they would often fish was spear fishing. If you turn to, you don't need to, but if you want to turn sometime to Job 41, you'll see it. It took place at night. They would go out in boats and they would put over the prow of the boat a lantern and that light would bring fish rising to the surface. And when the fish would rise to the surface, they were trained to spear them and bring them into the boat. There was a barb on the end of that spear. The third method of fishing... Was by a large dragnet, eight to 900 feet long, 10 to 13 feet wide. It was weighted on the bottom with weights and cork on the top, so it would literally hang in the water like a curtain. And sometimes they would hook one end of it to one boat, and the other one 900 feet away to the other boat, and then they would oar or paddle into a circle, drawing that dragnet tight, and then they would pull the net uh, yard by yard into the boat and extract the fish. That's one way. Or they'd go about a thousand feet out from the coast, from the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and they would string it out, all 1,000 feet of it or all 900 feet of it, right parallel to the, to the shoreline, and there would be a boat or a, a rope on one end and a rope on the other, and, and fishermen crew, crews would be on the, the land, and they would pull it in towards the shore. Here comes a, a liquid curtain pulling those fish to the, to the banks. You get to see that one in Matthew 13, where it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore. There's the imagery. And sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. This is the call of the gospel. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. So now listen, look at me for a moment. Already we're seeing fishing as a metaphor for the work of making Disciples. Well, there was a fourth way that they would fish. They would take a cast net nine to 12 feet across. It had a rope at the very center and all the way around, kind of like an umbrella, were lead weights. And they would throw that into the waters where they knew the fish were. The lead weights would drop that net down and they would pull it in. And those weights would enclose like a jellyfish around those fish. And they would pull it, pull the net to them. Now, listen, that's the form of fishing That Peter and Andrew are doing in Matthew chapter four. So let's read it again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, here it is, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. It was a casting net. And Peter and Andrew were using it when Jesus walked up to them. And what I want to see, or what I want us to see in this passage, because all that was just introduction, all that was just background. Now we get to get into the three points. I want us to see our part. That's you and I, Christian. If you claim the name of Christ, this is you. His part and the promised outcome. How does Jesus turn us into those who can catch men and women with the gospel. How do we do that? That's the call of discipleship. Well, let's look at our part first. And you get to see the words, follow me. You know, I, a few years ago, I searched the gospels, and this was incredibly surprising to me. I, I was thoroughly unprepared for this. I searched the Gospels to learn how to develop leaders in our church. I was about to conduct a board retreat and I was going to be doing the entire retreat on developing leaders. So I looked at all the times the word lead occurs in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I figured, man, there's got to be dozens, if not hundreds, of verses on this. I mean, how did Jesus... Take a group of 12 uneducated men. All of them were uneducated. None of them had gone through seminary. None of them had gone into a rabbinical school. How did he take 12 uneducated men and turn the world upside down with the 11 of them? Judas, pull him out. How did he do that with 11 of them? Surely... He taught a lot on leadership, so I looked up the word lead. In the context of leading people, the word lead occurs in the Gospels ten times. Now listen, every single one of them in a negative light. So I'm really not off to a very good start, and I was just days away from a board truth. I said, Lord, man, you got to give me more material on this. So I said, okay, it always works and everything else. Let's put the S on it. So leads, and I did another search. I found five references, two referring to the narrow and broad gate, two to those who lead others astray, and one to Christ who leads those who know his voice. I'm still not getting much, so I said, okay, let's try leader. Now, I've got a a pretty powerful Bible program. I just put the word in there, and, and I set my search parameters, and it tells me every single time it occurs, wherever it is in the parameters that I dictate. So I tried leader in the Gospels One time. It's in Luke 22. You see it on the screen. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Not a lot, but I'm a little heartened here. I'm a little encouraged. So I tried the plural trick again. I said leaders and found nothing. And then I tried leadership and found Nothing! And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm really surprised, with all of the Christian books at Hackman's on leadership, and all the CBD, Christian book distributors, and Amazon, the Maxwell books, and everything else on leadership, where are they getting their material? Because I'm not finding anything. So I expanded this beyond the Gospels. I said, alright, I'm going to need help. I'm going to put the parameters to the entire New Testament, and I focused... And found almost the exact same, listen, non-existent result. And here's what I discovered. You ready for this? Jesus rarely ever mentioned leadership. Now, I'm going to invite you to do that because some of you are probably sitting there going, no way, he cannot be right on this one. You know what? You do your own search. You see what you find. I think you're going to come out exactly what I did. I was shocked. Now listen, Jesus taught leadership, and he did it by living life together with his disciples, but not in the classroom. Instead of talking about leadership, he taught followership. Now I want you to hear this. Leadership training Always starts with the humble nature of a follower and almost entirely missing teaching in the church today. Yet follow occurs 25 times in the Gospels. Rarely, if ever, does leader occur nothing about leadership in the Gospels, never seeing the word, yet follow 25 times. See, be willing and able to follow is the essential foundation of of excellent leadership. And I'm going to say that again. You got to hear this. I'm going to encourage you to write it down. Being willing and able to follow is the essential foundation of excellent leadership. That means this. You've got to be teachable. You've got to be obedient. You've got to be trainable. And when the master calls, you step into life behind him. Now, Greek language is beautiful. And by the way, you have just as much access to the Greek language as I do. You can find the tools on the internet. And if you go to the word follow, what you're going to find is the word follow means that you've got to step off off your path and onto the path that is behind Jesus. See, a person that's no longer willing to follow is no longer fit for leadership in God's kingdom. You know this is a criteria that I use, that we use, for asking people to step into leadership? We want to see how obedient, how humble, how teachable, how yieldable... They are now without the title. And while not all of Christ's followers became leaders in his church, and you got to hear this, every single one of them remained his followers. Not all of Christ's followers become leaders in his church, but every one of his leaders must remain followers. See, the command to follow Christ is the entry gate to becoming a disciple. Now, how do you make disciples of, who know how to make disciples, right? This is all what this series is about. Well, here's the entry gate. You've got to invite people to follow Christ. to Get off the path that they're walking on and get into and behind the path Jesus is on. Do you remember that I could hardly find the word leader and leaders and leadership, but I found 25 occurrences of follow? Now, listen to this. I said, you know what? I wonder how many times the word disciple occurs in the Gospels. 270. 270. You're not going to find leadership. You're going to find only negative occurrences of lead. You're rarely going to find leaders. In fact, you won't find leaders. But you'll find disciple 270 times, and you'll find follow 25 times. And the Bible is speaking to us because the Bible never instructs us, not once, to make Christians. It teaches us to make disciples. And it all begins with a willingness to become a follower of Christ. So let's jump into the text. Here we go, verse 18. Everybody look at it with me. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, look at me, because you're probably, if you're really thinking through this, you're shocked. I mean, you might even be saying, you got to be kidding me. Jesus walks up to guys who are right in their career, and he says, follow me, and they just abandon it and follow him is that really the way that it works Well sometimes it is but I'm going to show you something that a lot of people don't know about this You'll start seeing it when you take all of the gospel together if you get over to on your own time get over to John chapter 1 and you'll find us that before this ever occurred in Matthew 4:18 John 1 Now listen Jesus already met Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, and likely James and John. In fact, he met Peter, and he said, Peter, Simon Peter, from now on, your name's going to be Cephas. That occurred before Matthew chapter 4, 18. They had already met. They'd already had introductions. Now, you ready? This is going to blow your mind. Matthew 4, 18, our text. Well, after Jesus already met them, He started to go on early part of his ministry. He was going to go to a wedding where he changes water into wine. He was going to go to Jerusalem where he makes a whip and he drives out for the first of two times one at the beginning one at the end he's going to drive out moneylenders. he's going to drive out those greedy animal stall keepers from the temple courts who are robbing their people and robbing God it's a house of prayer but it was a house of commerce He's, he's going to do that down in Jerusalem and guess what he's going to take with him some of these early disciples I mean it says in the text in John that his disciples were with him not all of them They were with Jesus in his early part of his public ministry. And then they go back to fishing. Pastor Tim, what are you talking about? Well, this is where you've got to be a student of God's Word. You go to Luke chapter 5, you're going to see the call again. And now the call is a little bit differently. Peter is going to be out fishing. Jesus, a crowds are pressing him. He's about to be pushed into the water. So he says to Peter, whom he already knew, whom he had taken on some forms of ministry, and he says, Peter, let me get into your boat and row out a little bit so that I can keep preaching. And Peter says, okay. And after he's done preaching, he says, "Now I want you to take your nets and I want you to throw them in the water. And they had been out all night because you fish at night. And so they'd been out all night. And Peter says, I'm really tired. We've been doing this all night. We caught nothing. And Jesus said, Peter, put your nets in the water. They did. And the nets were so full that when they started to bring them in, the nets started to break. And what did Peter say? He said to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. O oh, Lord, and Jesus reiterates the call: follow me, and you're going to catch men. And I want you to look at the text at some other time, because not only did they leave their father James and John into the boat, the text says they left everything. In Mark, and look at our passage today in verse 20, Matthew 4, verse 20, they left their nets and followed him. But you go to Luke 5, it says they left everything, even their father in the boat, Zebedee, and followed Jesus. See, Jesus will often call us through stages into deeper and deeper expressions of ministry. I mean, get the order again. John 1, he meets Peter and he changes his name. He invites them. He brings them. He invites them. Matthew chapter 4, follow me. I'm going to give you a taste of ministry. They leave their fishing business for a little bit. They go out on the itinerant trip to the wedding and to Jerusalem. And they go back to fishing. And then Luke 5, here comes Jesus again. And this time it's an irrevocable call. It is a call of no return. And they left everything to follow him. To follow me means to get in line behind and go in the same direction as Jesus. And it requires the will. Now, you're going to see this in the text. It requires the willingness to get off the path you are on and get in behind him. Or in other words, look at verse 17, Matthew 4. Can we look at it together? Or in other words, it means to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Stop going your way. Go the opposite way. Trust Jesus by becoming his follower. See, Jesus is saying, follow me. Break all of your ties and allegiances and get behind me. All right, so if we've got the same appeal to us, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let me just start with this. Have you been willing to leave everything for Jesus? Not some of it. Lord, I'll give you a little bit of my time, but the rest of it's for me. Or I will do this, but don't call me to that because I don't want to go. So if you're going to be a disciple maker who knows how to make disciples who know how to make disciples You've got to be a follower first. It's the entry gate into disciple making and to be a follower You abandon your allegiance to anything else You've repented of it and you've gotten in behind jesus and whatever he calls you to do You will do that's what it means to follow me nothing any longer hold back held back And that powerful appeal last week that we heard from F.B. Meyer begins to echo with its reverberating power. Here's what he said. If you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? See, a follower is yielded, humble, teachable, and stays that way, and God brings them into influence in his kingdom. Well, that's our part. Is your heart soft? Is your heart malleable? Meaning that it's shapeable? Is your heart yieldable? Is it teachable? Do you, are you a learner? Do you want to give him everything? Are you holding things in reserve? Listen, there's a lot of people in the church who like to dictate and control how much they're giving to God. And God says, wait a minute, you're not a follower. Depart from me, Peter said. For I am a sinful man, O Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, Master of all, who has the right to do with my life anything you choose, and it is my glad willingness to give it to you. That's a follower. Now listen, that might not be you. That me. That might might not be you, but that was me. If that's not you, then you need to begin praying that it will become you. The Lord would yield your heart, and by his grace, pull it fully behind him. But his part is coming up next. You see, he didn't happen to run into these men. He intentionally came to them. I mean, don't you love these words from John 15? You know how encouraging these words are to me? You did not choose me, Jesus said, to his disciples, to you, to me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This is all about God's choice. This is better. I mean, him choosing You is better than standing against the wall and then being asked to dance by the beautiful ones. It's way better than that. It's better than being picked to be the team captain. It's better than being chosen to lead the management team. I mean, God set his sights on you before he even created the planet, before he created the universe, and said, you will be mine Then comes the day of the Sea of Galilee where he walks by you and says, it's time to follow me and your heart lurches in response. Soaring. That's the power of God's call. That's his part. It begins with that. Look what it says. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't call these men because of what they brought to the table. They had, according to John 1, already believed that He was the Messiah, but they are Galileans. You know Galileans are rural. The Jews down in Jerusalem. So here we go. You ready? I'm going to divide the land of the Jews of the time of Christ. Up north, you got Galilee In the middle Samaria, half Jews, and down below Judea. That's where Jerusalem is down below. That's where the intellectual priests were. That's where the Sadducees and the rabbis mainly taught. So you've got the intellectual elite down south, 80 miles north. You've got Galilee. It is country folk. It is rural. They're not educated. This is where Jesus gets most of his disciples. The only one he didn't was Judas, who ended up betraying him. Ironic. See, Galileans tended to be very narrow-minded. They were superstitious. They were full of Jewish prejudices and animosities. And these four, Peter, Andrew, brothers, fishing partners with James and John, these four were ordinary, rough, callous people. You know what George Bernard Shaw once said? He was an Irish playwright, very, very famous. He said this, and I'm quoting, I have never had any feeling for the working classes except the desire to abolish them and replace them by sensible people. That, that's the sophist attitude. That's the intellectual attitude to people like me. To say, I'm from a 600-person town. I'm a Galilean by that standard. What a different mindset Abraham Lincoln had. Here's what he said. God must love the common people. He made so many of them. I love that guy. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. God takes ordinary, plain people and makes them extraordinary. We just hyphen the word, extraordinary. God's the one that does it. I mean, think back to the Old Testament. Think back to David. Who was called into service while a lowly shepherd at the bottom of the caste system, if you can call it that, in the Jewish paradigm. He was a lowly shepherd. He wasn't even caring for his own sheep. He's a lowly shepherd just one step above the hired hand. He's watching over his father's sheep. He's just the person God wanted. Think of the prophet Amos who said, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. He was even trained. They had, they had prophetic training schools in the Old Testament. Isaiah was believed to have gone to one, not Amos. He's just a country guy. And God said, you're going to be a prophet for me. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Because I will make you into a fisher of men. See, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. For consider your calling, brothers. This is us. Listen, I'm really sorry. I really truly feel bad for you if you are one of the elite of our society because you're not in this passage. So just kind of sit back and relax while I talk to the rest of us. But for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, powerful, or of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose for Lowly Galilean fishermen. I mean, haven't you ever thought through this? This is kind of interesting. I mean, couldn't Jesus have come and gathered around him a group of rabbis or a group of Roman philosophers to extend the reach of the gospel right off the bat? Or geniuses or wealthy intellectuals of his era? He didn't do that. He took people who were, now listen, teachable. Now, time out for a moment. Is that you? That's not everybody. Here's how you know if you're teachable. Are you a constant learner? Do you love to learn? I mean, when I'm preaching, Is there something that's resonating in you going, man, I want to know that stuff. I want to find out for myself. I want to be able to tell people these things. That's a learner. That's a teachable person. So he takes people who are teachable and humble enough to leave everything behind and follow him. He says, I will make. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to change your life Now, I want you to hear that, because what I didn't just say is, I'm going to give you all the tools you need. I didn't say that. No, I'm not going to give tools to people who are arrogant and proud. I'm not going to give ways to make disciples to people who are selfish and want to run after the world. No, I am going to make you. I am going to change you. I'm going to transform you and show you how to do that. I'm going to first change you, then I'm going to equip you draw people to salvation. So for around three years, three and a half some believe, he's going to take these disciples and he's going to love them. I love the way that Jesus does this. He's going to love them. And he's going to change them. Now listen, bit by bit. Do you know when the night came that he was betrayed? He's hours from being crucified. And they're gathered, the disciples are, around the low little tables, kind of like our coffee tables, and they're enjoying the Passover meal, and John is leaning back against Jesus' chest, meaning that he's to his right, and Peter's probably all the way across because he's whispering to John, so they had eyesight, and he's got Judas to the left. You know what they're doing around the upper room, low-end tables during the Passover? They're arguing about who's the greatest. He's already spent three years with them. Yet they change the world because Jesus will change us bit by bit. And he's going to show them how to make disciples wherever they go. And he's going to teach them how to teach others. And you know how he's going to do it? It's like this chart shows you. He's going to do the ministry and they're going to watch and they're going to talk about it. And then he's going to do more ministry, and now he's going to get them to help, and then they're going to discuss it. Think feeding 5,000, separate them into groups of 50, into groups of 100. He's now engaging them in the ministry. Who's going to feed them? Disciples, how are we going to feed them? He's engaging them into ministry, and then they talk about it. And he's eventually going to have them start doing ministry while he helps, and they talk about it. Then they're going to do ministry. He's going to send them out two by two, and they're all going to come back He's going to stay in the area because they're going to talk about it. Then he's going to ascend and he says, now it's your turn. Teach other people the same way I taught you. Listen, if you're trying to make disciples, let's say you've got one, two, or three people, and I'm going to encourage you to stay stay, uh, same gender so you don't fall into an immoral trap. But let's say you take one, two, or three people who... You say, I'm gonna make a disciple out of you, I'm gonna stay with you, I'm gonna journey with you, and all you do is once a week, for an hour and a half, you give them information. Number one, you're utterly unlike Jesus, and number two, you're not gonna work. It's not gonna, ma- it's not gonna work. That's not how the Master did it. He bled Himself into them. He walked with them through their struggles. He allowed them to walk with him, James, John, and Peter, and Garden of Gethsemane, through his struggles. You share life together, and you bring the teachings of Christ to bear. It's the way Elijah did with Elisha. It's what Moses did with Joshua. It's what Peter did with Mark. Paul did with Barnabas, and on and on. It's the way to make disciples who know how to make disciples. See, Christ made disciples through relationship. Follow me. He promised to transform them and teach them. I will make. And he was intentional because he knew the outcome of his work. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Let's look at the promise outcome. We've seen our part. We've seen his part. What's the outcome? This is a promise. It's not a possibility. It's not a perhaps. Maybe it is a guaranteed promise if you do your part christ will do his part here's going to be the outcome you will become fishers amen you know we need to learn to fish which is great for me by the way and a few others because i love to fish i learned how to fish in lynchburg virginia And the Old Testament gave us a glimpse of this fishing career that all Christ followers are going to learn. Look at what Jeremiah 16 says, "...behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord. And they shall catch them, and afterward I will send for many hunters." And they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. He's sending for fishermen and he's sending for hunters to go after people who are lost and bring them into the nets of the kingdom of God. And he's going to transform us, Christian brother and sister... Do your part. He's going to do his part. He's going to help you become fisher of people. And you're going to seek the lost. You're going to draw men and women out of the abyss. You're going to catch them in the net of the gospel for his great kingdom. But fishing takes skill. And that skill needs to be taught. So I'm going to give you five ways to become fishers of men and women. You know, some of us are like the person who drops that baited hook in the water and thinks fish are just going to be fighting each other to be the first to have the privilege to bite down and be pulled from the waters. This is not the way it works. What's it look like to fish for people? Let me give you five ways. Now, I'm going to, before I even start, probably switch the PowerPoint already, but let me, let me just get you engaged. You ready? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to honestly hear these five things and rate yourself. I I think the Lord's helped me be really good at this. Uh, I'm really not very good at this. And if you're not very good with this, cry out for God's grace to make you good at this. I will make you fishers of men. If you are really good at it, listen, give glory to God because it's only his grace that helped you get there. First, fishing requires a great deal of patience. You know, when I learned to fish, if I didn't catch anything in the first few casts, I lost confidence in the bait and started to change it. Ah, they're not biting on this. I mean, pull out from my tackle box something else. If that didn't work in a few casts, I'd try something else and something else and something else, and I'd go home never having caught fish. And part of the reason is I had no patience. You got to work the bait. And we get to see this throughout the church. The gospel doesn't work like it used to, we think. So let's change it to something more palatable, something more presentable. Let's shorten the sermon. Let's get more music. Let's do more artsy, creative things because that's what's going to draw people to the nets of the kingdom of God. And God's up in heaven going, did you not watch what I did on earth? I did one thing. I preached the good news of the gospel. I mean, all the other things are great. We love worship in this church, and we want to become more uh, skilled, at centering on the arts when we need to. And sometimes it's really fun to do more storytelling in a sermon or through a worship station. But listen, what brings people to faith is the gospel. And a church that lets go of the gospel is a church that's entertaining. They're ineffective. They're not patient for the work of the gospel. Friends, the only bait that can bring people into the nets of the kingdom is the gospel being shared by you and by me who are the light and the salt of the kingdom. Which moves us to the second skill that we got to develop. Now, how, by the way, let's, let's, real quick. How are you with patience? How are you with confidence in the gospel? How are you with taking sometimes months and even years to let the gospel drip into those who don't know Christ and allow it to germinate, allow it to percolate, allow it to draw, even gaining credibility when you love them, gaining credibility when you have mercy and grace to them, and all of a sudden the gospel looks pretty amazing and they want it. Well, the right presentation. It's the second one. Not necessarily, now listen, some of us, this is a major, major, huge, I'm running out of synonyms. Gargantuan, pulled that one out of my hat, problem in the church. Too many Christians don't have confidence that they can talk to somebody about the gospel. So I'm not saying when I say the right presentation, I'm not necessarily saying, can you explain the gospel right, though that is obviously and certainly important. In fact, the majority of Christians really cannot do that. We've got to learn to do that. What I'm talking about, the presentation I'm referring to is this. Is your life an excellent presentation of a changed saint? Do you love? Are you compassionate? Are you merciful to people? I mean, come on, how hard is it to present the gospel when you're not a very loving person? You're not going to find you're catching very many fish. The unloved, the marginalized, those who are bypassed by the religious... Always found their way to Jesus. I mean, look at the Gospels over and over. The drunkards, the prostitutes, the adulterers, the tax collectors, oh, they were hated. They didn't even bother going to the rabbis. They didn't bother going to the Pharisees because the Pharisees and rabbis hated them. They went to Jesus over and over and over. He dined with them. He partied with them. He walked with them. He lived with them. He journeyed with them. He spent his life with them. You're not going to catch many or even any real fish if you're in the water splashing around and shouting out the lyrics of the song that's playing on your iPod and throwing trash in the water. You're not going to catch anything. And neither will you catch men and women for the gospel if you do not love or have mercy. So how merciful and loving are you? You know, we have people in our church, and this might be you. I'm not thinking anybody in particular as I say this that's in this room, So, but it might be you. We have people in this church who, and every church has them, they have no friends. In fact, people flee from them. And I'm thinking, you're not going to catch fish. You will be utterly unable to make disciples who make disciples because you don't know how to love and to move towards people. Well, you got to be patient. you got to have the right presentation. But third, fishermen need to know how to stay hidden. You know what? Even your shadow on the water will spook fish. When I taught my children how to fish, We would go and we would say, now listen, before I even get to the water, no more talking, only a whisper, and don't make a lot of noise. Fishers of men, listen, we only want one person to be seen, and that is Jesus Christ. You're in the way of Jesus, and you're casting a shadow, and you will move people away from you rather than towards Jesus I, when I am lifted up, Jesus said, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Well, fishing for people, it cannot be about our reputations, another notch on the belt. It can't be about our honor or our glory. It's only about Jesus, which is why the Apostle Paul said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's why John the Baptist was so incredibly effective, because he, he lived what he said. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. You can't cast a shadow. You've got to learn how to stay hidden. This isn't about us. This is about Jesus. And fourth, fishers of people must be bold and willing to take risk. You want to know something about fishing in the Sea of Galilee? It was surrounded by ravines that were over a thousand feet high and they Mountains that were a thousand feet high and had ravines and the winds would blow down suddenly. Within minutes, you'd be out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat and their boats weren't very big. Some of them have been salvaged from the silt at the bottom of the lake, 26 feet long with about an eight to nine foot beam across. They're not very big, especially when the waves have been recorded to be 20 feet high on the Sea of Galilee. I mean being a fisherman was a dangerous profession. And they spent their lives on those unpredictably dangerous waters, forsaking safety to catch fish. You know, I learned I learned how to fish from two men. Chip, who's no longer alive, died at twenty-eight years old. You know what? I've never seen anybody be able to bring people into the kingdom of God like Chip Arnold. And John, my friend that I worked with, both these guys could fish so incredibly well, and each of them took me out and taught me how to fish. Chip took me to the Moray River. John took me to the James River. There's one time that John and I went out very, very early in the morning. The James River is a beautiful river that flows through Virginia. And we're out there and it's so early in the morning that the the temperature changed. There's a bank of fog on the river and we have walked into the river and we're up to our chins in water. And I look over and our, our rods and reels are over our, our heads and I look to my left and there's a railroad trestle and John says, look what's in those stones. And there's a copperhead snake coiled up. Scared me silly. But man, we caught a lot of fish. 'Cause the fish were out in the middle of the river, but it was dangerous to get there. Listen, you gotta be courageous to catch fish. You gotta be willing to brave danger. Even if your reputation goes down the tank, even if your coworkers call you a, a Jesus freak or a proselytizer, listen, you've gotta be willing to go where a lot of people won't go to get the best fish for the kingdom. And some people prove difficult to get the gospel, too, whether because they live in a Muslim, violent country or they're hardened to the gospel. Their coworkers, liberal professors, worldly classmates. Yeah, listen, we're called to fish and to throw the net of the gospel out and bring them into the boat of God's kingdom. There's a lot more to this. But let me give you the fifth skill. Here it is, perseverance, the final one. So many times... I've spent hours on the water and caught nothing. Now listen, almost every time, my mind starts to rationalize how much time I'm wasting, the family time that I gave up for nothing, the things that I could have gotten done, and the temptation is always, pack it in, head home, nothing's biting And I can't tell you how many times this has happened. Just before I'm ready to pull the lure out of the water, here comes that flash. And that splash. And my rod bends double. And all the time of catching nothing was worth the catching one. That's what it's like in the kingdom of God. You might be sharing Christ with your family member or that person for years. Years. And you're ready to give up and pack it in saying nothing's ever going to bite. You've got to persevere. you got to endure. And more often than not, the power of the gospel will bring the flash and the splash and the gospel will bend double and they will pull out of the water right into the kingdom of God. And it is worth all the years. Let me close with a story. I believe it's true. It's a story about the Cleveland Harbor On a stormy night in the harbor, listen, this is cool, the harbor had an upper light and a lower light up on the bluff and down on the coastline and you had to, you had to line them up and when they were aligned, that's how ships knew, that's how you navigate the rocky shoals of this harbor, that's how you make it safely to the docks, but this was a stormy night and the, the pilot could not find the lower light. It had blown out by the storm, found the upper one, couldn't find the lower. And they appealed to the captain, let's go back out on the lake. Because I can't see the lower light. And the captain said, I don't think we're going to survive the storm out in the lake. You're going to have to go forward, do the best you can. They hit the rocks. Some of them made, made it, many of them drowned. Guess who was on that boat who was telling the story? Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody brings out the point. Our upper light is always shining. That's Jesus. Listen, we are the lower lights. Too many of us are out. And people are not finding their way to safety and they're shipwrecking into an eternal death. We got to be the light of this world and the salt of this world and bring people into the kingdom. Follow me. Get behind me. Yield. Be teachable, give up allegiances, give everything to me. I will make, it's my power, it's my transforming grace, I will make you patient, the right presentation, enduring and persevering, hiding in the shadow, hiding and letting me come out. I'm going to make you a fisherman. You're going to bring people into my kingdom. You're going to make disciples who know how to make disciples. Amen?